Previously on Story Jazz, Fandango. Won't you look at us? We've got Guinevere, a soldier, many, many kills under her belt. We've got Xena. It's Xena. Right. And we've got my top hat wearing friend and trickster Bert. Ah, and last but not least, I'm so thankful I can greet him here tonight. My oldest of friends, Cletus Vu, pet store owner and the most ruthless thief I've ever known. You can't be serious. We're going to rob an airship? A hand smacks down on a glass table and reveals a coin with a jester's hat on it. Can somebody tell me what the fuck this is? I'm sure there's nothing to worry about, Prince Fordham. Everything is see-through. Everything except for the vault. Guinevere Stone sits in the center of a circle. Wait, she's part of the crew? She's the inside woman. Guys, uh, we've got a code. Uh, what's darker than red? Like, what's the worst color than red? Lamontaine predicts. And Zena looks up and says, what does that mean? Fuck if I know. Cletus Vu and a young boy sit in the front row of a packed courtroom, packed full of reporters, but everyone is dead silent. In front of Cletus and this young boy is another old man in an orange jumpsuit, handcuffed to his chair as a lawyer prattles on and on, but Nobody's really listening. Everybody is fixed on the orange jumpsuited man. The handcuffed man turns around and locks eyes with Cletus. Neither say anything, but they've known each other long enough to where nothing needs to be said. He's going away for a long time. Maybe forever. And there's no way out of it this time. There always seemed to be a way out, but not this time. As the gavel smacks the wood and echoes through the room, they lose eye contact. Suddenly, everybody's getting up, and the man in the orange jumpsuit, Fandango's father, is escorted out. The guards don't allow them a last farewell, and as Cletus sees... His friend, for the last time, he remembers the promise he made him. But as Fandango sees his father for the last time, he's thinking something entirely different. Welcome back to Story Jazz, a improvised storytelling podcast. We are doing a heist story this time around. I'm Softy. Hey, I was going to, you stole, you stole my opportunity just well, to introduce myself. It's, it's I'm a Sam. heist show. It's all about stealing yeah. off. Of, okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, you were one step ahead of me, and that's what heists are all about, is being one step ahead of the competition. So where do you, you want to start today? Uh, we're kind of like cliffhangery point, right? I, I kind of want to know what happens next. So Gwen is in trouble. Yeah. And the rest of the crew is approaching in a plane. I think we got to see what Gwen is doing in Office 6. Okay. 
So, Gwen, Guinevere Stone, why don't you tell that's, me a little bit about yourself? Yep, that's me. Uh, not much to tell. I have been working in security since I was a teenager. Uh, started guarding nightclubs, uh, and then I just sort of worked my way up. And a brief stint in the military, too. Two tours in Iraq. Right, yes, that, that is something I don't love to talk about. And the private security team in Afghanistan, too. Yeah, like I said, I worked my way up. I guess I'm good at punching people. <laughs> so, three and a half years in Chicago, and then two in Cleveland. Right. Yeah, so what did, did you want me to tell you my life story or no no disrespect, but you seem to already know everything. Just doing my job. I'm sure you want me to be thorough. Is that what you're carrying around in that briefcase? My my life story? Files on everybody working on the blimp? Oh, this old thing. And she pats the enormous briefcase. Yes. It's just your life story. <laughs> And she opens the door to to Office 6. It's an automatic door, actually. It goes... <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, she reaches for the door, but it goes... And they both walk in. There you are. Okay, so let's get talking about how we prevent heistery. <laughs> Am I using that term correctly? Prince Eddie is already uh, in the middle of a whole session. Uh, three more of his pretty clueless looking investors gathered around him for moral support and a big uh like touchboard whiteboard device on the wall where somebody has drawn a very crude representation of the zeppelin <laughs> and uh, written its name over it the glass zeppelin's name is i uh wilfred <laughs> No, uh, <laughs> sure. Do you want to be called Wilfred? Give it, give it a cool ship name. We just did a pirate story. Well, I like now Wilfred. we're doing airship thieves. It's basically pirates it's... again. <laughs> the Zeppelin's name is Wilfred. It was named after my favorite dog when I was seven years old. Don't make fun of it. Okay, sorry, Eddie, who is now speaking to the gods who are creating this story. <laughs> Gwen and Beatrice put on their specially polarized glasses as they walk around the monitors to look at the display. All of the cameras are functioning, and there's timers on each one to show their rotation and how far along they are in their usual recording loops. Zero blind spots. An impressive setup you've got here. Uh, yeah. Th thanks. Now what would happen... If you had a blackout. And Beatrice just unplugs the tower. And all the monitors go dark. The three investors look up shocked. Gwen looks between Beatrice and Eddie. Eddie goes, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> this setup is more expensive than a, than a, a gilded Ferrari. And I have eight of those. <laughs> wow. Yeah, uh, Miss LaMontagne, we really need those monitors to be running at all times. The slightest slip-up in security could ruin everything. If you need the monitors to be working at all times, you've got a bigger problem on your hands. 
These cameras should only be one of several fail-safes. So I'll ask again, what happens when the cameras aren't working? Uh, Gwen shuffles back and forth and uh, pulls her, her clipboard out. Did she have a clipboard for? She had a clipboard before. She had a tablet. Oh, she pulls her, her clipboard tablet out. and An iPad. <laughs> and he pulls her iClipboard out and <laughs> scrolls down the list and says, Well, we have rotations of guards working on a 15-minute loop. Bathroom breaks are taken only off shift, so there's never a break in security. All of the guards are wearing uh, body cameras and um, thermo sensors so that even if the guards are taken out, their bodies will continue to sense the presence of others around, so we should be able to locate infiltrators at any time. Shit, we're making it really hard for ourselves. <laughs> Beatrice nods, listening as she plugs the computer back in. We hear a faint as the computer spins to life again. And then because it's Windows 7. <laughs> again, we're Windows 7. Uh, yeah. Uh, so all the guards, all the cameras... Um, and then, of course, everything's made of glass. So you would see with your own eyes from here if anybody was moving around suspiciously, right? That's the concept of the uh, USS Wilfred. So riddle me, riddle me this. What would happen if this Zeppelin were infiltrated by a robot? Something that didn't emerge on your infrared scanners? Well, I don't think that technology exists yet right a sophisticated robot sophisticated sophisticated enough to like move through the sophisticated enough to put a calling card in the shoe of one prince edward edgar ford and eddie looks expectantly at uh gwen okay whose whose theory is it that a robot did that because we didn't talk about that. Was that your theory, Prince? I, just guessing. Well, I don't know how anybody else could have gotten in and put it if it wasn't a robot. We haven't landed in six months and we haven't been refueled in three. So unless somebody aboard the ship were to have done it, I can't imagine it'd be anything except for a robot because none of the security cameras mention anything going on in the past three months. They already had them reviewed 12 times okay, by okay. experts yeah, in seven yes, different countries. Yes, Prince, you're you absolutely right. It It must... It must have been a robot. And Gwyn glances nervously over at Beatrice, hoping that Beatrice can't tell what she's thinking. Because Gwyn is thinking, it wasn't a robot. It was me. Fandango told me to put the calling card there, and I thought, well, that's a really bad idea, but if you've got to be all conspicuous about it, that's what I'll do. By the way, Miss Stone, do you happen to still have that old calling card, the coin? Oh, uh, yes, I... I would like to see it. Yeah, I, I uh, hold, held on to that as evidence, of course. And she pulls the jester's cap coin out of her back pocket. She, toss, she tosses it through the air with a nice ding. It flies over. Beatrice pulls a rubber glove out of her pocket and catches it with a rubber glove so as to not put any fingerprints on it. She holds it up and looks at the jester on one side and the, what was on the other side? 
the crown on the other. Sorry, audience, if it wasn't a crown, I forgot. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was. I also wonder if Hungarian coins from 1976 have a crown on them at all. <laughs> Who knows? And she, she flips it over and she says, Budapest. And Gwen gulps. Beatrice would have known where this coin came from. What? What does the... What does Budapest mean? Says Prince Edward Edgar Fordham. Budapest means that we're dealing with an old friend. Is that a, a good a good thing or a bad thing? Who is this friend? Well, maybe you know something about that, Miss Stone. Um, know something about what? The coin. You're a security official, right? You should know about the famous master burglars and their calling cards. You don't recognize this one? Um, yes, but I, I didn't know if it was uh, relevant to Prince Fordham, sir. Not relevant. You're right. I don't care. <laughs> I just don't want to be stolen from. <laughs> I don't care who's doing the stealing, just that they don't do it. <laughs> Beatrice raises an eyebrow. The burglar we're dealing with here is Fandango. Quite a prolific master burglar. Has been active for 40 years, and uh, I've worked with him before. What, what kind of name is Fandango? A chosen name, and one to be taken seriously, she says. So, does that add any relevant information to what we should be doing? Um... Just asking because I have other things on my schedule for today, Miss Lemontagne. I don't mean any disrespect, but... No, no, it's fine. Go about your day. I'll stay here and discuss plans with our prince. And she sits down on the creaky office chair and starts flitting through the cameras again. Gwen nods deferentially to the prince and forces a smile before reaching for the automatic door, but it opens <laughs> automatically uh, as she steps into the hallway. But she can't breathe a sigh of relief yet because the doors and walls are see-through, and there's not a moment's rest when she's undercover. She proceeds to the glass elevators, rides them down to the bottom of the vehicle, looks out into the night sky. It's getting really dark now, pitch black. And it's a new moon. There's very, very little light to see by outside of the blimp. And the flickering lights of Seattle passing underneath. She knows that somewhere out there, a large heist leader, a small, technically proficient girl, a middle-aged magician, and an old Vietnamese pet store owner are on their way. The store sells Vietnamese pets only. <laughs> it's well, no, it's Viet really hard learning their Bruce, names. Bruce, I know, Bruce, I know, Vietnamese. please, Vietnamese. <laughs> Gwen arrives on the bottom floor, the so-called storage and toilets area. <laughs> S&T. And um, calls out to two guards. <laughs> Bruce, Kevin, can you come here for a moment? And the two guards shuffle up silently. Uh, we've got a refuel coming in. I know it's a bit early, but um, they wanted to do it tonight. Uh, just um, can you guys get on the plane? 
and uh, make sure that everything is in order. Yeah, sure. Says Bruce. All right, Captain. Says Kevin. <laughs> aye, aye, Captain. <laughs> I can't hear you. Says Gwen. Yeah. Gwen nods and looks out westward into the night sky. Some blinking red and white lights are approaching. Uh, here they come, she says. My narrator voice is also dropping down to Gwen's level now. <laughs> so what do you th- what refuels a Zeppelin? Do you think it's a helicopter? Oh, I think it would is be it- one of those like large um no no, I think it would be a plane. Uh because I think but a plane, plane moves so fast. I think planes can carry more cargo than helicopters though. Yeah, but plane moves so fast. No, but you can match speed. Oh, way a fucking faster. Zeppelin though. Yeah, that's true. It's gotta be right, a helicopter. It moves so slow. So it's got to be either a helicopter or another Zeppelin. <laughs> smaller Zeppelin. It's got okay, to be a smaller folks, Zeppelin. Thank you very much for having so much patience with us. We said last episode that they were sitting in a plane, but they are now officially sitting in a smaller Zeppelin. <laughs> because we realized that if the plane moves too fast to fuel a Zeppelin, it would just spray fuel all over the Zeppelin. There you go. <laughs> so we cut to the interior of the smaller blimp. Fandango is flying the blimp. <laughs> Fandango is sitting at the front with a steering Fandango's wheel. Son- Shit, this is becoming more and more a continuation of our pirates theme. We are now steering. Why? We are now <laughs> entering an airship with another airship. <laughs> Fandango says, Yar, there, there she blows. <laughs> As the smaller refueling blimp approaches the larger to be refueled blimp. <laughs> Fandango pushes a few buttons to send out the recorded greeting that the refueling blimp is always meant to send. A little jingle uh, sounds out. (laughs) It's the jingle belonging to Fordham Incorporated, the company that built Prince Fordham's fortune. Fordham Incorporated, everything you need to clean up your mess. It's the cleaning utensils company. (laughs) Very wholesome. Fordham Incorporated. Everything you need to clean up your mess. Don't get an expensive Swiffer. Get a Fordham. (laughs) You can afford them. Yeah. (laughs) You can afford them. I love it. Oh my God. Get a Fordham. You can afford them. And Fandango gets a buzz back. Uh, They're permitted to approach. Well, here goes nothing. You all ready? And he looks back at the other three gathered in the seating area of the smaller blimp. Barry, that means you're up. Hey, right. I'm more than ready, boss. And Barry immediately pulls down his pants. <laughs> okay, cool. I'm I'm jiving with it. I'm jiving with it. Bruce and Bruce and Kevin, was that the names? Yeah. Bruce and Kevin pull their rifles over their shoulders. <laughs> For a very short moment, I was afraid you were saying they also pull down their pants. <laughs> All right, Bruce and Bruce and Kevin put their rifles over their shoulders and uh, extend the landing dock. It's very difficult to connect one blimp to another, but it's less difficult than to connect a plane to a blimp. So this is what's <laughs> happening. The glass tube meets the crinkled vellum one of the refueling blimp in the middle. What was, what was Kevin's voice? I made a funny voice, but then I forgot what it was. It was like, hi, boss. It was like this. I think so. Hey, Bruce, you, you want to do the otters or is it me? Uh, and Bruce goes, huh, kid, I think it's time. 
that you do it for once. Grab the lever. Pull it pull it real good. Kevin grips the Give lever. Give it a good old yank. <laughs> a powerful yank. Knock knock it out of the park, kid. Kevin pulls the lever with both hands and grips it firmly and he yanks as hard as he can. <laughs> and as he pulls down with a kachunk, the two tubes lock together and the door connecting the two blimps opens. <laughs> Moments later, Kevin and Bruce are stepping foot inside the seating area of the smaller blimp. But there's no one there. Uh, hello? We were supposed to check out if everything's going all right with you guys. Are you uh, refueling or what, what exactly? <clears throat> Pick a thing, anything. They hear a voice from behind them. They both turn around to see a man in calf-high socks and pink underwear, completely naked otherwise, with a bushy, hairy chest smiling at them, holding a top hat. And the last thing they see, each, is the spinning brim of a top hat hit them square between the eyes. Xena and Vu step from behind the soda machine in the blimp. Um, <laughs> Shit, we need a place to hide. Spawn soda machine. <laughs> and they see Barry Bertolini pulling on the trousers from one of the two guards. Ah, uh, which of you wants the other one? Xena or Vu? Sorry, Fandango. I don't think it's going to fit you. That's quite all right. I've got to uh, fly this baby here. Xena is looking down at the two guards, raises an eyebrow and says... I can do my work from here. Cletus, you should probably uh, do your magic inside, whatever that magic may be. And she sits back down to get ready to hack. It's been a little while since I had to impersonate someone else. What are you talking about, friend? Says Pandango. You've been impersonating a pet shop owner for years now. Yes, and you've been impersonating a master burglar. We're all just faking it until we are making it, right? <laughs> I don't fucking know. I've been reading this life coach book about fake it till you make it. <laughs> it's really inspirational. Oh, God. Vu takes the uh, folded up trousers and shirt and bulletproof jacket from, from Barry Bertolini, who's now fully dressed up. He's trying to affix the top hat on top of the uh, thermo goggles on his head, but it it looks out of place. He knows he's going to have to leave the top hat behind, but he doesn't want to. You don't think that is a little conspicuous, do you? <clears throat> but the flare, the flare, you don't understand. No, I really don't. But do what you must, I suppose. And we all watch as Cletus pulls the trousers on, laces up the boots, pulls the jacket over, and the moment his head comes through the hole of the shirt, his back straightens, his shoulders broaden, and his arms thicken, and it's as if he's a different person entirely. He's no longer the hunched old man leaning on his cane. In fact, the cane's been on the ground as he's been dressed. He, he's standing at nearly six feet in height. He's he he looks like he lost 40 years and he gained 30 pounds. It's insane because there's nothing 
supernatural about it, but it's like a magic trick. He's just shifted the position of his shoulders. He's put on a brighter expression, and it even seems as if his hair is fuller and less gray than it was before, even though that's impossible. From behind, he looks like he could be Bruce. Well, what are you all staring at? Don't we have a timetable to meet? And he walks out of the smaller blimp back into the bigger one. Barry looks at the other two in surprise and tosses the top hat back onto Zena's head before running out after him, hitching the rifle onto his shoulder. As he leaves the smaller blimp, Cletus pulls the uh, refueling nozzle along and, uh, you know, plugs it in in the bigger blimp and starts the refueling <laughs> process, which will take a little while to, yeah. to happen. But that's just he alibi. Refuels it with all the fuel for the refueling fuel. Yeah, the fueling thing <laughs> happens and that's uh, all alibi and it's, it's working fine. Cletus steps out into the glass blimp and pulls the infrared goggles over his face twists his jaw left and right as he pushes it forward, jutting it out just a little bit. And he looks down the hall. At the other end is Gwen. and She's staring at her eye clipboard, waiting. Barry Bertolini clears his throat. <clears throat> and Gwen looks up. Oh, it didn't... Uh, oh, it's you. Uh, Get over here. For a moment, she didn't realize it wasn't the two guards. The taller one... Cletus looked exactly like Bruce for a second. But then she realizes that the other one <laughs> is very much looking like Barry Bertolini. <laughs> Just sans top hat. Barry, I never realized you have a tiny bald spot in the middle of your head. <laughs> what bald spot? I don't know what you're talking about. A And he makes a weird movement with his hands. And the bald spot's still there. <laughs> All right. Uh... Are we just going to stand around? Don't we have a safe to crack? Yes, uh, we do. You should probably not say that out loud. Um, we're pretty much safe here, but there are, are bugs all over the place. They pretty much might be hearing us at any time. Zena, are the loops ready? And we see, we cut back to Zena, the table and the blimp as she's just finished tying up the naked guards in their underwear, <laughs> tying them to the soda machine. Zena sits back down and scrolls through a huge list of cameras and microphones and infrared uh, body cams, each one tied to a particular piece on the vessel across from them. And she says, yep, I've got uh, the two guards. I've got... Uh, Cletus and Barry, they're both on a loop, so nobody can hear them from their personal mics. And the underbelly fueling chamber is also on a loop, so you guys are safe to talk there. I'll set up the audio and visual loops when you guys pass each room as you go. Just please, no running. I can only keep up with so many cameras at a time. So impressive, Fandango says. You know this newfangled technology, all this new, like, hacky stuff that you've got to do? I'm so impressed. I couldn't imagine learning all the skills it takes to hack into a system this sophisticated. How do you do it? And uh, Zena just says, well, we have an inside woman, right? She, she's a security officer, so she just gave me the password that 
so that that wasn't really a lot of hacking there. So I'm just pushing buttons at this point. But thanks, I I appreciate it. In my day, we would have just spun the knob on the safe until we got the right numbers or blown the safe up and then just taken whatever survived the explosion. And then Cletus over the comm says, in my day, we would have just killed them. And the whole crew goes quiet as Cletus <clears throat> coughs and walks out of the fueling chamber. Shit. I, I don't know if that's, that's I don't know if we're going to keep that, but I, I wanted no, I to just like. I think it's perfect. I think it's perfect. I want Cletus to have this dark side. Yeah. Absolutely. Barry and Gwen follow quickly after Cletus. The whole crew, silent, not entirely sure how to respond. Gwen eventually speaks up first and says, so you're, you're both due, or Bruce and Kevin are due for an off shift now. So you're to go exchange with um, Xavier and Zach <laughs> in the coffee room now. So that gives you 15 minutes where you're not on shift to do the thing. That should be more than enough. Oh, more than enough. And uh, Barry loosens his trousers a little bit. <laughs> the three of them walk to the elevator, take it up in silence, knowing that they don't want to waste any of Xena's precious time. And at the top of the elevator, I would say as the door opens, but they can see even before the door opens because the door is glass, Beatrice Amontaine is waiting. Psh, the door comes open. <laughs> Gwen, how nice to see you again. Uh, yeah, we've, um, it's been like 10 minutes since we spoke. Bruce so. and Kevin, I take it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yes. Bertolini, Bertolini tries to imitate Kevin's voice. What was it? No, you gotta do a voice doing a voice. <laughs> I would do a voice doing a voice. Uh, yeah, yes, I'm, I'm Kevin. <laughs> and I'm Bruce, says Bruce. Or rather, Cletus, disguised as Bruce, perfectly imitating the man's voice. Um, we're due for an off shift right now, so if you don't mind, we'll head off straight to the coffee room. Uh, very nice meeting you, Miss uh, LaMontagne, was it? And Beatrice's eyes linger on Cletus for a second. Have we met? And uh, Cletus says, Yes, I escorted you onto the Zeppelin when you first arrived. That's right. Carry on. And Cletus doesn't even give Beatrice a second look as he, shoulders broad, walks right by her with a curt nod. Barry shuffles after him, uh, doing his best not to look back as Gwen lingers with Beatrice for a moment. Uh, did you need something? Yes. Would you follow me? I'd like to see the fueling station. Uh, well, I guess we're gonna go right back down in the elevator then. Okay. And um, Gwen steps back into the elevator. According to the schedule, we're due for a fueling in the next half hour. Yeah. Uh, yes, that is already uh, running, actually. Let me uh, already show you. Already running? Yeah, they're ahead of schedule a little bit sometimes. Um. That's, but great, great, great point. They're ahead. Yes. Interesting. Let's head downstairs. And she steps into the glass elevator and presses the down button. Um, let's jump to Cletus and yeah. 
Cletus and Vu walk nope, down nope, the hall. No, 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 no. Cletus and Vu, wow. <laughs> uh, Cletus and Barry Bertolini. <laughs> What's up? I love how we say his whole name every time. It's I love Barry Bertolini. To say. Hello, I am Barry Bertolini. My name is like pasta. <laughs> <laughs> Call me Fettuccine Bertolini Alfredo. <laughs> <laughs> All great magicians sound like pasta. Hmm. My favorite magician is lasagna macaroni. <laughs> and what is this inside the lasagna? It's your card! <laughs> fucking no. Was this your card? Yes, this is my card. I may have ruined your family dinner, but hey, here's your card <laughs> that you picked out. You'll never look at lasagna the same way again. The paper cuts. The paper cuts. The magic rabbit's erupting out of between the layers of salt and pasta. Hey everybody, this episode is sponsored by Story Jazz, a narrative improv podcast, and uh, <laughs> we're really glad to have them sponsoring our episode. Um, look forward to hearing more about them in the future. You can find them on Spotify, you can find them on Instagram, uh, you can find them on Twitter, and most podcasting apps. Uh, follow them on Facebook. Uh, they want to they hear from you. <laughs> What are you laughing at? I just, I feel like you, you did such a great service to the ad copy of our client, Story Jazz, a, a totally different uh, p- group of people who hired us for our first sponsorship deal. Yes, this is the very first ad break that actually features an ad. An ad by us. We're, we're paying, paying ourselves, which tax-wise sucks, so don't do it, but it's it's fine for this episode, I suppose. It's it's a prestige thing, right? We want yeah. to be one of those podcasts that has ads in it. <laughs> no, I think it's more that we want to be the first people to buy an ad slot on our own podcast. Otherwise, that's going to go to to somebody else. And, and We have so many people asking, and we just don't yeah. want to, you know, we're still running background checks on all the people who want to run ads on our show because we don't want to, yes. you know. And most of them are failing miserably. Yeah, yeah. You know, usually illicit conferences in North America just knock knock it out. You know, we can't we can't have that capitalist nonsense. So you guys are listening to Story Jazz, um, uh, improvised. <laughs> Wait a minute, we already said this. <laughs> Find us um, on Facebook and Instagram at Story Jazz Cast, Twitter. We as already well. said that too. Um, Shit, you already did. Yeah. What we did say Wait, though. I gotta make a paper rustling noise. <laughs> I have no ad copy left. What we didn't say is please tell your friends, tell your relatives, tell anybody who who you think might like our podcast. Uh, that's how podcasts get around. And we we love you all. We, we really appreciate all the work that you do. Folks, there's going to be a poll up on our Instagram this week or the following week to let you interact a little bit with the next story that we're working on. Um, try to maybe maybe decide sort of the general genre that we go towards, something like that. And um, we're going to try to do a lot more uh, interactive stuff, open up a Discord channel and stuff, and, you know, maybe even someday do a live show. Have we talked about this? We have talked about this. Uh, we're both terrified. We'd love to do it for you. Live streaming, mind you, not an actual live. Yes. All the venues that uh, that have 
begged for us to do this, of course, um, are closed now due to COVID. Also, I haven't seen a living person in real life in at least several weeks. So how do you (laughs) how do you eat? Well, I eat non-living things. That's easy. (laughs) You should know that you're a fucking vegan. (laughs) Thank you all, as always, for bearing with us. And we will not see you soon. We love you. We love you. Barry Bertolini and Cletus walk calmly down the hallway as they pass the oblong oval glass table in the glass chamber as Prince Edward Edgar Fordham is yelling at his collection of investors. All right, I've seen all of the mops that you've shown me, but I'm not approving any of them. They're all so dingy and and pedestrian. We need mops of of sentimental value. We need mops that will stay with a family forever and yet constantly break so that they'll always come back to us for a new one. We need ones where the family will become affixed and become brand loyalists till the end of their grandchildren and they'll buy mops for us forever. Mops like that. I, I understand, Mr. Uh, uh, Prince Fordham. I've had enough of you. You there in the corner. Well, Prince Fordham, uh, the line between brand loyalty and obsolescence is a very difficult one to walk. No more lines. No more lines. You over there. You over there. Uh, I'm just. I I'm just the janitor. I was just cleaning. Give me something. You're here. holding a mop. You must know something. This is actually not a Fordham mop. This is a what? Lessing. It says. Lessing. You know the jingle? Lessing mops. Buy a Lessing mop. They cost lessing than the Fordham ones do. <laughs> Eddie Eddie Fordham is fuming. Who do I have to fire to get mops of our own brand on my own Zeppelin? If I'm going to fire somebody, somebody right now. And he points out the door directly <laughs> at Barry Bertolini. What, me? Yes, you're fired. Get, get out. Uh, um, uh, get, get out, get out. Uh, um, uh, yes, sir. And <laughs> he, he <laughs> hurries along and uh, Cletus, completely nonplussed, follows after him. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <sighs> Deep breaths. <sighs> Steady your breathing. Remember the Lamas glasses. And Cletus and Barry hurry to the coffee room. A glass coffee cup is emptied and set back onto its saucer. Xavier and Zach are having a jolly good time drinking coffee and playing cards. Even the cards are transparent. It makes it really hard to tell who's winning or what game they're playing. <laughs> it's really, it's poker face doesn't help much when your card, when your hand is literally visible. <laughs> and reflecting onto the, well, actually they do make transparent cards where it's like opaque on one side and a little circle on the other side, it shows you what number it is. That's quite I've cool. I've seen them before. They're very cool. Um, that's what kind of cards these are. The real problem is that all of the surfaces are minorly reflective because they're all glass. And so you can just look at the wall and see the reflection of the hand of the person yeah, across yeah. from you. So they're just playing war where neither person really knows what's going on anyway. They're just flipping the cards over. <laughs> wow. Card game geek. Good jokes. This is awesome. We're really covering all our bases in this show. 
Barry and uh, Cletus are walking into the room, and Barry says, I can't believe I already got fired. I barely <laughs> even work here. <sighs> Maybe we can use this to our advantage. Oh, oh, hey, guys. As he walks into the room and sees Zach and Xavier, the other two guards. Are you feeling okay? You sound different, Xavier says. And instead of answering, Barry simply kicks off his shoe and sends it flying through the room and into the microwave, which by some magic of being rattled by the shoe, the door of the microwave closes and it starts running. And Barry goes, oh no, I slipped again. The two guards look at the microwave absolutely stunned by the physics of what just happened. And as they look away, Barry springs forward and grabs up, snatches up all the cards on the table and starts whipping them between his hands in a sophisticated pattern, <laughs> throwing them back and forth. And as the two guards turn around, they notice that their name tags have been switched. <laughs> and Barry says, you want to pick a card or should I do it quick? And, um... Zach says, uh, uh, what? Like, what? Are, what? I don't understand. And Barry says, pick a card or I'll do it quick. And Cletus says, hey, fuck Cletus. Um, and, uh, and, and Xavier picks a card. Pick a card. Oh, third from the left every time. And he pulls a card out. Wait, what the fuck am I doing? I was going to have Barry like knock him out really cool but that would be it's visible glass, right glass yeah yeah we so. can't do any of that <laughs> i love to kick the shoe into the microwave it's fucking fantastic <laughs> it's just oh my god um it's, sometimes you just gotta improvise barry is basically our uh, uh, our approach to storytelling <laughs> converted into heist uh, tactics <laughs> what's going on kick the shoe in the <laughs> microwave nobody will know that we forgot a whole plot point um okay Xavier picks the third card from the left. It's a three of clubs. And Zach uh, picks a random card out of the deck as well. It's uh, three of hearts. Wow, you're both threes. That uh, has a deep uh, meaning. You're, you're deeply connected. And Zach and Xavier look at each other. And they both blush. And they both blush and look at the floor. And Zach says, well, I, I don't know if that's real. And Xavier says, I, I'm we." I have to get to my shift. I have to get to my shift. And they both head in different directions as they, they grab their rifles and, and pull on their goggles, refusing to look at one another. <laughs> and the coffee room is empty. L love it. Ah, that's beautiful. What a scene. It's, what a scene. What a, what a fucking scene. But <laughs> Cletus looks at Barry. And if it weren't for the fact that his face is stone cold, Barry could have sworn that he was impressed. All right, let's move to the vault, he says. Uh, Zena, you got us to the vault. And we hear clacking through the headset. All right, guys, you've got um, 15 seconds once you open the long hallway, because I can only hold the vault invisible for a minute after that. Clack, 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 clack. Yeah, so 15 seconds. So make your way as if you're walking towards the hall, but don't 
turn towards the vault until I give you the go. You can't look like you're heading there because I'm going to loop your walking afterwards onto the next camera. So you have to look like you're walking straight through. You got it? Uh, that I don't quite. I understand, Cletus says. Bert, just follow my lead. And they move on. Meanwhile, in the glass elevator, Guinevere Stone and Beatrice LaMontagne are halfway down. So I'm curious, what was Afghanistan like? Dry. And working for a private security firm in the Middle East was totally fine, morally ethical? As, as half of Gwyn's brain debates how to answer, the other debates a wholly different question. Beatrice must know what's going on. She's, she must have predicted this. She must have predicted at least half of what they're doing. Why else would she want to go down to the fuel room? And why else would she ask about the place where she met Fandango? Gwyn's finger twitches. She almost raises her hand, but then she decides to answer the question first. She says, uh, it was not a question of morals. I was just following orders. I hadn't discovered yet that I could be my own person, fight for my own ideas. And I'm curious, Miss Stone, what happened when you found out you could fight for your own ideals? And she looks Gwen deep in the eyes. Gwen tries to resist that gaze and then looks at the display. They've almost reached the bottom floor. And then she sighs and <sighs> reaches out and presses the emergency stop button. The elevator grinds to a halt. And a dull red light illuminates the whole elevator, refracting off of every glass wall and ceiling in the whole Zeppelin. And Beatrice raises her eyebrows. Hmm. I guess the probability of that happening at about 45%, but you did it anyway. <laughs> What, what is your plan here? I think Gwyn is panicking because she knows that Beatrice... Is onto her? Must, kn must know, and so disabling Beatrice... Is the, is the next is, move? Is the next move. Yeah. Putting her out of, out of touch with everybody else. Locking her down. Gwen swallows and fingers the, the clasp on her sidearm. Not sure if killing somebody is really the M.O. for this mission. But then the red light all at once disappears. Don't worry, I got you, Xena says in her ear. If anybody noticed that, they, well, I hope they'll put it off as a fluke. Just get on comms and tell everybody that everything's fine. And whatever you do, make it look normal, Fandango calls over comms. <laughs> right. Gwen reaches to her other ear where she's got her official um, Glass Zeppelin security force <laughs> calm earpiece rather Wilfred. than her. Wilfred security team. Wilfred security team. Alpha. Wilfred security team alpha. Great. Wista. <laughs> rather than the other ear, which has her secret heister team, Beta. Um, <laughs> and she says, no panic. There's an elevator failure. We'll get a mechanic crew in with the next refueling. Carry on. And Beatrice 
quietly, looks at her, looks up at the massive woman across from the elevator. I calculate that the chance of you killing me now just dropped considerably, which means that whatever you're here to do, you're very close to completing. Am I right? Gwen refuses to answer. At this point, she thinks anything she says will give Beatrice more information. If I take your silence as an affirmative, then the two guards we just passed must be on their way to the vault as we speak. They're the most likely. They're the last ones you were in communication with, which means the Zeppelin is either harboring or entirely controlled by Fandango. And Gwyn swallows and says... So I take it you know what we're after as well. I know. I just don't know why. That's perfect. That's perfect for what I'm planning. <laughs> I'm, I'm just playing it up because I trust you. I have no idea. Cletus and Barry walk down the hallway that leads to the large catwalk that leads to the center of the blip, the center containing nothing but an opaque safe. But neither of them look at the safe or at the vault. They just walk calmly down the hallway. And under his breath, Cletus counts. Three, two, and right before he says one, he hears a click on Zena's side, where she sets the camera in front of them to pick up the same footage from the camera behind them. So it looks seamlessly as if they walk out of frame of one camera and walk onto frame of the other, but they don't. Instead, they turn into the catwalk and run as fast as old Cletus Vu can down the catwalk, 15 seconds of time to get as far down as they can while Zina blanks them out. They only have a blip only a moment before, well, they'll be caught. Their combat boots squeak on the glass as they reach the vault. Well, now we've officially dropped off the camera grid, and it really only takes one person looking in the wrong direction for too long for us to be seen, so let's crack this door open quickly. So who cracks the door? Is it uh, Cletus? I think it's it Cletus, right? Yeah. Uh, how do we how do we do that? But Cletus is already standing up in front of the door. The lock is based on a password, a fingerprint scan, a retina scan, and a tongue scan. One step at a time. And he holds his fingers over the keypad, and he feels the keys. And when he senses the very slightest buildup of grease, he hits the key. And then he reaches for the next, and he hits the key. And he hits the key. And then when he gets to four, he just hits the zero. And the, the lock goes, four digits, he says, as he fondles the keys again, feeling for the grease. A two, a five, and a six. There's a duplicate of one. So, and quickly... He puts in 
all of the various combinations of 2, 5, and 6 in which each number is duplicated. His fingers moving at a breakneck speed as he chatters in the different codes. And finally, he gets 5, 2, 5, 6. Ding, ding. The keypad glows green. And the next part of the lock is activated. It's the hand scanner, a fingerprint scanner. Impossible to dupe, right? Yes, impossible to dupe. And uh, uh, Cletus reaches into his vest and he pulls out Guinevere's uh, eye clipboard. And he gingerly uh, flips through and says, I hate Google Docs. <laughs> and finally opens up a, a white blank page with a set of five fingerprints. And he holds his fingers above them. And then with his fingernail, starts to engrave on the ends of his fingers the shape of each fingerprint, one after the other. And Barry looks at him kind of horrified. He realizes that Cletus's fingers naturally have no fingerprints. At some point in his life, he must have surgically removed them, and instead he has this strangely malleable, fleshy substance at the end of his fingers that retains the imprint of his fingernail and makes it possible to recreate somebody else's fingerprints. And they have just the softest touch. Oh my god. And so he very carefully, once he finishes tracing <laughs> so the fingerprints, <laughs> once he finishes tracing the fingerprints into the ends of his fingers, holds them over the fingerprint scanner and lays them lightly on top. As a green bar waves across them, once, twice, three times, and finally, ding ding, the screen glows green and the next part of the lock is activated. It's a retina scanner. It's, yeah, the <laughs> now this one is really fucking difficult. Like, how are you going to... He's not going to have the same... Like, uh, wow, how are we even going to do this? Why do we make it so hard on ourselves? I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, this one is actually rather easy. And he uh, pulls a small flashlight from his pocket. And he holds the flashlight up to the retina scanner. And right as it starts scanning, he presses a button and, uh, and a blinding white light flashes for just a moment. Most of these aren't very sophisticated, he says. They simply look for matches. So if you provide it with all the available data, it always finds a match. Ding, ding. The retina scanner glows green and the final part of the lock is activated. The tongue scanner. <laughs> God, I'm so glad we did. Did you forget this. about the tongue scanner? Nobody forgot about the tongue scanner. If only they, 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 just, they did this in a couple of weeks after Eddie Fordham had it removed. Uh, and, oh, I, I have the one for this. Go for it. Just so, my, just so the audience knows, Sam just said, oh, I have the one for this, and then rolled up his sleeves and leaned <laughs> over the bike. Barry goes, okay, okay, so what's your solution for this one? You gotta imitate Eddie Fordham's tongue print? No, 
This one isn't about the print. It's about your uh, biosphere, your internal biology. What? What? What is? What does that mean? That means nothing to me. <laughs> well, for the past weeks in preparation of this job, I have been eating and drinking exactly the same things as Eddie Fordham. And he leans forward and sticks his tongue inside the little hole, uh, waiting for the node inside to zap him. And as it does, he doesn't even flinch. It just goes, and he leans back. And uh, what exactly does that diet consist of? Barry Bertolini says. Let's just say a sandwich should never cost (laughs) $10,000. That's really good. And as he says so, he remembers before his mind's eye flash horrible images of incredible amounts of caviar. (laughs) Oh, God. So much fish egg. And if there's one thing that Cletus hates about millionaire culture, it's fish eggs. (laughs) Ding, ding. The final panel glows green. And then... The locks inside the door open. Would you do the honor, Barry? My back is a little stiff. And Barry steps forward to turn the crank. The crank screeches as it is turned. And from the inside of the vault, we see the door opening. Light floods the room. A mostly empty room. There are some old trophies from Eddie's high school time. Uh, He was on on the polo team. I was going to say lacrosse, but he was on the polo I was team. Polo because, because of Spencer. <laughs> he was on the polo team. and uh, Second place every year. Second place every year. To they Akron always Academy. lost to Akron Academy. There was this kid on the other team called Spencer. He was really, really kind of just, just too good. But other than a few personal memorabilia, there's nothing particularly valuable in here. Except for the box in the center of the room. Cletus is about to enter the vault when over his headset, Xena says, wait just a second. Okay, disabled the lasers, you've got one minute. And the two step inside. The ivory box in the center of the room seems to glow from within. It's taunting them. Cletus, up until this moment, had just been doing the steps, doing his job, walking the rhythm that he'd done so many times before on so many jobs before. But he'd forgotten what it was to step into the safe and see the score. He forgot about the rush of getting it. He forgot about the temptation of when you see the thing that you worked so hard to get and it's right in your grasp and how good it feels to take it. But then he remembers that he's not here to just pull off this job and help Fandango win another round. He's here because he promised something to Fandango's dad. And so instead of taking the box and stuffing it away as he was told to do, he opens it. Barry Bertolini goes, "Uh, oh, wait, we weren't supposed to. But then he is silenced 
by the sheer beauty before him. A strange bluish light falls upon their faces, flickering like the light reflected off a pool of water. The two gaze in silence for a moment, and then Cletus breaks that silence by saying, How disappointing. I'd hoped that it was anything but this. Inside the box is a beautiful blue diamond. A diamond that Fandango's father stole many years ago. His big heist. And the one that landed him in prison. Ah, it's just a... It's just a gem, right? It's just worth a lot of money, right? That's the whole point, isn't it? No. This stone means a lot more than that. What it means is, fuck you, Dad. And Cletus reaches into the box and just takes the diamond with his bare hand and starts walking out of the vault. Wait, uh... Cletus, I mean, uh, Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) And Barry runs after Cletus, trying to uphold some semblance of their undercover roles, and then almost stumbles as a sudden blaring noise rings out over the speakers, audible everywhere in the Zeppelin. Boom! 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 Oh, well, here it goes. And we cut to the elevator with Gwen and Beatrice as a smile grows across the tiny woman's face. What an inconvenient time for a fire alarm. (laughs) Almost as if someone planned it. And Gwen realizes that what she's saying is she calculated the time of the heist so perfectly that she timed the alarm beforehand? Am I getting that correctly? Yeah, exactly. Wow. And as Cletus and Barry run down the catwalk, guards explode out of the doors all around the Zeppelin and level their rifles at them. Beatrice looks up at Gwen and says, Now let's see what your backup plan is. I'm recording. Okay. Well, you know what we should do after clapping? We should do like a call and response thing because then I can time it. So it's like call. Howdy, baby, baby, baby. <laughs> yeah. Very... I, I was trying to set up a call and response, but you said absolutely nothing. So it's completely useless. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Howdy, baby, baby, baby. Howdy, baby, baby, baby. How you doing, doing, doing? I am a doing, doing, doing. Fine, fine, fine. I'm terrible. Great, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) My life is in shambles. My life is in shambles. I'm walking through brambles. Metaphorically, I mean. Ouch, my feet hurt. Metaphorically. My feet are really fucking... My feet are bleeding everywhere. Metaphorically. (laughs) I am losing a lot of metaphorical blood. I am bleeding out metaphorically. (laughs) Metaphorically, I need... Uh, blood transplant. Please, I need, metaphorically. Metaphorically, I need medical assistance. 